comes to the biggest one is by all means make your life plans and make them goals and strive for them but understand that at any point along the way there's going to be something that gets in the way of that and to be agile with that goal with that focus with that life plan something can come in and derail you but it doesn't mean that that plan can't still be a thing you just have to readjust how you are going to face it now hey everyone welcome to another episode of discover more where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Discover More. Uh, on this morning, we have a very special guest, my commanding sergeant, a Staff Sergeant Monica Anderson. I've known her for the past five years during my Army Reserve commitment, and there is no other better person than a Staff Sergeant Anderson to talk about her military experiences and to share about how the mental health, her journey in physical health as a, a someone who's working with sports medicine professionally. So I'd like to turn the mic over to um, Staff Sergeant Anderson, or I guess Monica for this interview's sake, why the military out of everything and what made her the person she is for the past uh, years. Thank you. Appreciate the introduction. I'm going to start with that I did actually get promoted. Oh, congrats. Uh, Sergeant First Class yeah. Anderson now. Yep. That was as of July 1st, but I didn't get to wear the rank until last month, so... Congratulations. So that's exciting. But yeah, as far as why joining the military, due to being basically outed as a lesbian, um, my parents kind of pulled all kinds of funding for college, and so my options were find a way to work my way through it, not go, or the military. And after extensive research on all the branches and who was offering the best education benefits and what MOSs would get me back in time for the January semester, entered back in May of 2000 and uh, got right back into school as soon as I could. So that's, that's kind of the motivation for that. And it's been a 20-year career since. Yeah, um, I think it's interesting because um, obviously military is very big in the U.S. and obviously military spending is one of our largest governmental expenditures. And I think when the world and when Americans who is not in the military look at military as, oh, U.S. has the most powerful military. And obviously people say, I thank you for your service and all these. But people don't quite understand what it actually entails and what comes with it. And obviously you talked about, you know, you being ousted by your parents uh, because of your sexuality at the time and still is. And you had to make a choice. Uh, but I think, and obviously, flash forward a year later after you joined, it was uh, 9-11. And obviously, you didn't know that was going to happen. Nobody knew. Did that affect anything or how did that sort of shift or change your projector for the military after you only joined for the sake of college tuition at the time? Um, I mean, at the time when it went down, I mean, I still remember it. I was, I think, a sophomore by the, credits wise, I was a sophomore by then. I remember sitting in the dining hall. I almost said DFAC. It's not a DFAC. It's a dining hall. And me and the ROTC people were just kind of sitting there like those of us who were actually serving, not just there for the, you know, cadet scholarship. We're actually like, shit, what does that mean for us? 
we're gonna we're gonna have to do stuff like you sign up and when you sign up in a time of like a general peacetime you understand what it means to be in the military but you don't fully sit, let that sink in until you're like oh we're gonna have to do that and so I like I didn't actually move and deploy until uh, 2003 so it was really just a lot of sitting there for two years being like are we what are we doing what's happening is this are we doing this like and then uh you finally get the call to go it's mostly a lot of shock you just go through every step that someone calls you and tells you is next and you just go (laughs) you don't even take the second some people did they took a second to think about what they were doing like what was happening and those are the people that had the biggest struggle because they understood the guys that had been deployed before they knew what was coming down the pike what it was going to be like and then us youngins too i mean i was at e4 barely and i was only in for three years and like i don't i don't know what's happening just kind of followed all my leaders with whatever they did just tried to keep up (laughs) so but i just made it very real there's so many people now that don't have the combat patch, that don't have that experience, who haven't been anywhere, and that's not a fault of their own. There are people that volunteer to go to these things, but most of us kind of sit there and hope you don't have to for your career. But you understand when the time comes that, yeah, you do. You got to do it. And that prompted, I mean, I was only halfway through my college career. I just tested into the athletic training program. I was like, doing career moves like getting ready for internships and things and then they're like uh no you're going well shit (laughs) like so all the classes come to a halt all the everything just stops your life at home gets put on pause and then you go do your job what did the what did the expectation you mentioned there was that two-year gap of kind of no one really knowing what was expected or at least the younger people in the military. What did that gap kind of look like? Were you continuing your studies in college waiting for the deployment call? And then once you did receive that call, how did those expectations shift? Because I can imagine your perspective before kind of just all speculation around what it was going to entail. And then once you were actually there, how did that narrative flip between those two years hearing, you know, from past deployed fighters versus once you were actually there? How did that perspective shift? Well, that too is it wasn't like a constant on edge waiting. Mm-hmm. Um, we watched, you know, 9-11 happen and we just kind of were like, what does this mean for military? Our leadership pretty much that day was like, listen, we're kind of on a standby. Just, just wait for a call. Okay. About a month went by and of course we're drilling. So it's not like we didn't get to see each other and talk to everybody and, you know, start figuring out what things mean. But then our leadership from like group down just kept telling us like, nope, we're not, we're not on the list to go. We're not doing anything yet. We haven't been told we're going. Just train like normal. Just be you guys, be reservists. And we're like, okay, that's fine. And honestly, we just kept getting that kind of feedback that whole time. It wasn't until about probably a month before we actually left that we were told, okay, they're telling us it's nothing official, but let's start reading. Like the guys that had done it before, like let's start putting some puzzle pieces together unofficially. Our training schedule got changed. We're now doing, you know, our annual training in January in California out at the National Training Center. They're, you know, they're simulating us going to the desert. This is probably going to happen. 
We're not telling you to quit jobs or get out of school or anything, but we're just telling you to start being ready for that phone call. And that's when the real shift happened of like, okay, like any, any minute, any minute we're going to get called. I remember I got the call, I think it was on a, it was on a Saturday. So, and I had to report Tuesday with all your stuff packed, ready to go. So we got, you know, less than 48 hours notice. So it was call family, call friends, see if there's anybody I could visit before we left. Not to mention, I was still with my significant other then. Um, so I wanted all that time. Plus that Monday I spent withdrawing from school, trying to move stuff out of my dorm, trying to get in touch with all my professors to be like, I'm out and I'm out as of tomorrow. Like I can't, I don't have time to wrap things up here. It's a, it's, we're done. See you, see you in a year, hopefully kind of thing. So it goes from a lot of anticipation and preparation to this got real fast. But that was also the beginning of a, I don't know if they ever actually called it a war, but that was in the beginning. Now things, I mean, there's units who know they're leaving five years in advance and they're on a rotation and a training plan and they have dates, they have a lot more structure. Yeah, right that, was, that was the big question that was coming to mind for me is, do you think this was representative of the experience itself, kind of the circumstance of everything? Like they actually didn't know what was going to happen because hearing it 20 years later from your story, it seems like having even an extra week or an extra month to prepare and kind of go through all those things obviously would have made preparation a lot easier. So it's easy to say with hindsight that's the case, but do you think it was just the reality of the circumstance or it was it representative of like leadership conversation at the time and maybe that's evolved since? Kind of the macro of the military at the time versus the micro of the experience itself. I was curious if you could speculate on that. I want to say a little bit of both. I mean, mm-hmm. even if you look at our regular trainings that we do now when we're not on alert or we're not preparing to necessarily go anywhere, communication is, it's really a challenge and not just between higher ups and myself and myself down to the lower enlisted, but going back up the chain can also be a fight. Just getting a hold of an entire platoon of soldiers is, it doesn't sound like it should be hard. You know, you send out your text, you make your phone calls and you just say, hey, call me back. But yet the soldiers have lives too. They work over time plus, they may or may not respond. Or we had a couple situations uh, back when we were getting the alerts that people knew what that alert meant and they just didn't call back because, well, you get scared. So just planning in general, I do think back at the time, they really just didn't know. They didn't know what our role would even be. Our mission changed probably six or seven times even while we were in country. You anticipate that, but you can't really plan for that. There's a certain amount of planning that can be done and everything else. You got to kind of just roll with it as it comes. So I don't know if that answers the question. Definitely. It's (laughs) funny you say that because when I was pledging or one of the guys in my pledge class was 26 or 27 and he had done two years in Iraq, I think two rotations and We were going in to do this pledge-related event, and he said exactly that. He's like, as much as we plan, as much as we do, we have to, like, do it live once we get in there. That was, like, his big saying, do it live. Just everything that we plan, it's all just, like, speculation. What actually happens is once we get in there, which is kind of what you just spoke to, no matter what kind of planning it was, it's the reality of what it is could be entirely different, so. Definitely. And that's kind of the point that, 
it doesn't sink in on you till later in your career that that's the point of all the training that we do. It's not that we do it perfect in the moment. It's not that, that we can check all the boxes and get it right. It's, it's that you've done it so many times that when, when those check boxes aren't there, you can still piece together a reasonable plan based off of that training. That was kind of huge. That reminds you of two things. Um, the first thing is a former surgeon in our unit, a staff sergeant Ortiz comes to my mind. So just for Aiden and for the listeners, uh, Staff Sergeant Ortiz, he was like a former infantry soldier. He did, I don't know how many years in the military. He's a very big on zombies and uh, knives, and but he was like a parachuter, airborne. Um, he, he's very like the very badass military man figure you can think about. And I remember a conversation with him, just asking about his deployment experiences, because obviously he has multiple <clears throat> deployments on his belt. And he said that, yeah, the point of these drills and the point of these battle assembly trainings isn't meant for you to be perfect on the actual situations when it goes down. It's that when the shit's going down, you don't shit the bed and you're not just freezing and freaking out, panicking, but you have that residual training in the back of your mind that maybe subconsciously you could come out of the other side alive. Because yep. yeah, at the end of the day, when the bullets are flying by you, when you hear ID goes off or you're the truck in front of you is blown off and you see you see all these blood and all these actions, you're not going to execute things perfectly because that's human nature. But then the last thing you want to do is to freeze because people often think about only as fight or flight, but most people freeze, right? Most people don't fight and most people don't flight. Most people freeze and that's like the whole reason why these uh, trainings and assemblies are important so that you're you're acclimated enough so you don't shit the bed on the time when it does go down because things do go down um and i think that's the echo of what what you just alluded to yeah a couple questions i do definitely want to talk about mental health because i'm definitely hearing the theme of mental health from your experiences and from everything you've talked about and it also reminds me about our own um deployment you know that almost happens back in 2017 now um you know obviously when there is a huge tension nationally uh, between the white house under president trump and kim jong-un of north korea and i think it's interesting to know how that was different from you because during your first uh deployment to iraq in 2003 two years after 9-11 happens you had a month of pre-notion that it might happen you know right so you're sort of on the edge for like a month and then obviously when you did get the call to drop everything about your life, to put your life on hold and just fly over to Iraq and hopefully you'll come back alive a year later. So I'm sure the reality didn't quite sink in until you actually got there and maybe even a while after uh, versus for us, boy, to the North-South Korea border um, to de-escalate the high tension rising situation. Uh, we got like three false calls. And then I remember the last time uh, the general of the Army Reserve, General Lucky, he came and told us since we are a uh, force ready unit, there's only 13 of us in the country. And they're like, yeah, it's about 80% that you guys will get deployed. But don't do anything. Don't put your school on hold. Don't put your life on hold. But it's 80%. So part of me is like, what the fuck does that mean? So you're telling me 80% we're going to get deployed to North South Korea but you're telling us don't drop our school, don't do anything, just pretend it's normal, but it's 80%. Because um, in any field, 80% is basically 100%. Like, what's the difference, you know? So I do remember um, I did experience my depression for the first time because, as you know me, I'm very goal-orientated and I had this seven-year goal ever since I was, like, 15. And now 
when I joined the military, I joined it as a very post-peaceful era, and the, the idea and the chance of deployment was always there, as you talked about, but it was very unlikely, statistically speaking. So for someone like me who came from that inkling, hearing and feeling that, oh shit, like I am about to go over to one of the highest tensions regions in the country and potentially face the North Korean military. So yeah, I definitely went through a lot of um, like depression, I had a lot of anxiety. I had to, I ended up taking a leave of absence from my university at the time as a lot of us did. And I do remember a lot of chatter that was happening within the units and the companies that, you know, like there's always a 30% who's eager to uh, self-induce into that sort of environment. But the rest of us, we have a life, like we have a job, we have a life, we have families. So obviously putting our life on hold isn't what we want to do. Um, yeah. So I shared that. So I want to ask you about the mental health aspect where how that was different for you. The 2015 incident, uh, 2017 incident, sorry, versus the 2003 incident and uh, maybe some of the mental health um, things that happened to you and what, what you took away from those. Well, drawing from the experience from the first time around, um, honestly, when when you know, General Lucky came, told us the likelihoods of anything. I think if you looked around the room, you'd see a lot of us older heads were probably just like, yeah, okay, call me when it's real. And so we just went about our lives because, yeah, back when we got when we went, it, it was such short notice. And we kind of would expect that again. And in the meantime, to sit there and, you know, obsess on it and focus on it and stay in that space, it's, it's poison. So really... It's not really a voluntary shift. It's just going to be either one way your brain clicks to or not. And for most of us who have done it before and been around for a while and understood how it all kind of works, we just kind of were like, okay. And just pretended when that conversation was over, like, hey, thanks for the chat. See you later. And just carried on. Versus back in, you know, 2003 when we were all edgy. I mean, I was 22, 23 on deployment. I saw two birthdays on on those orders. It was it was just a different mindset because when you're when you're that young you're you're either ready to go hyper focused or hyper panicking because you don't know you had plans like I was still looking to try and graduate somehow and be a good student still with that looming over it's a lot of, that was just a lot of pressure and a lot of stress and a lot of well, why am I why do I even care about these grades if I'm gonna end up you know in the middle of a foreign country not knowing if I'm even going to have anything to come back to. So the two, the two times for me were just, they were different. Like, honestly, I kind of forgot about 2017. I remember the moment we were all up in that office when we got the, the conference call, but barely registered at that point. So it's two very different mindsets. I had also just had my twins. So it was very much in mama mode where like, okay, I'm not going to stress about something that isn't in front of me at the moment. So Let's just talk about it when it's real. But it was very real for that higher up because they were planning that whole thing. They had a contingency for if we went, if we didn't go, if we went and didn't have enough people, if they only needed half the company to go, if we were going to rotate. Like They had all that in front of them being planned out probably for months on the contingency of what if. So it was very much real for them. Whereas us, okay, thanks for the heads up. I don't know if that hit the point you were looking for, but... Yeah, yeah. Uh, it did. It's uh, I do remember many of their young heads. Like we've never seen so many high-ranking officers, and I've never seen that many generals in the span of like three months. It was constantly like they're telling us, and obviously they did make some a lot of major infrastructure 
restructuring and shifting a lot of other military branches into our company to make sure that when we do get deployed, everything is set in stone. So I do remember a lot of the logistical nightmare that happened, obviously, way beyond our control. So what you talked about, something that I picked up was that you talked about when things, when circumstances, when stress do go down, you're either hyper panicking or hyper focused. Right. And I think mm-hmm. that's a ability to detach from the circumstances, anxiety and trying to stay somewhat rational and focused. And that's a obviously a not necessarily unique ability, but it's an ability that usually comes from seasoning and age and time because you are able to have that shift in mindset from 03 to 2017 because you had the experience. You, you knew you went through it. You were in it. You were in Iraq. You were in the four country middle of desert. You went through all that. So you, you knew it was it wouldn't yield any benefits by inducing more anxiety. Uh, I heard this lyric from a song called Do Not Worry by Lil Duvac. And the lyric says something like, uh, do not worry, do not worry. Because when you worry, um, you basically suffer twice. Because whenever stress or life happens, there is an inevitable stress, an inevitable distress. So if you worry about that distress or the looming distress, then you're basically putting yourself through additional worry and additional anxiety that you don't really need to. Because like when shit happens, shit happens. So why suffer double the shit for the thing that you're about to experience anyway? So um, that's something that I've been really thinking about a lot because I'm going through a lot about my own personal experiences. I had a huge incident at fight with my girlfriend that we almost broke up. Like last week, I had to take a week off from work to self-care I saw uh, three therapy sessions during two weeks ago, read two books on relationship. And when I came back last week, uh, we were able to talk it out and we realized how ineffective our modes of communication has been because she just moved in with me about three months ago. So I was going through a lot of major life changes in Philadelphia. And then last week I heard, I found out that my sister lost her H-1B um, work visa that allows her to stay in the U.S. legally to work for any companies. And she's a software developer, especially as a woman. So it's a very competitive applicant. But because of COVID and because of uh, some of the new anti-immigration legislatives that came out during COVID, she lost a sponsorship. So right now I'm scrambling everything I can, trying to make sure she doesn't get deported the next few months. Um, so it's something that I'm really trying to take to the heart and trying to learn how to detach from the self-inflicted anxiety and just to be hyper-focused on the inevitable distress that comes with the process. So I thought that was very useful and thank you for sharing. Sure. (laughs) From there, I would like to hear a lot more. We've kind of been talking about the expectation for deployment, but what did that really look like? What was your role? How did that shift your narrative of what being deployed would look like? Like, what were you doing? How did that shape uh, your life experience. I'm sure there's a lot there. We're open to whatever you feel like is the most valuable to share or stories that come to mind. Really, the biggest thing was the understanding that you get told a lot of things. You get told the plan, you get told what to expect, you get told your next steps, and they kind of don't mean anything until they happen. So, you know, we were told we're going to meet this day, this time, we're going to pack this stuff up, we're going to go do X, Y, and Z. Like I said, I was just a specialist, so it was just, yes, sergeant, and go do what I was told. And then we go do what we were told, and then we're like, uh, yeah, so we did all that, and we didn't have to, so we're just going to go sit around for four hours. 
oh, okay, so we're already in this highly anxious situation and we're just going to go sit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, so, and so just learning how to deal with things like that, really it, it's that whole adage of, you know, it takes pressure to make a diamond. The majority of the company was probably 25 and younger. And depending on what your life was like before joining the military, you may or may not have had to handle that, any kind of stressors. So for some people, it was, it was hard to sit there and just sit in it and understand that, yes, at some point we're going to move and we're going to move forward. We can't sit here and be mad that this plan didn't work or this didn't go the way they told us. You just got to sit in the mess until you can crawl out of it and then keep progressing forward. So um, that was kind of my role, really, was just to sit and wait until guidance was given. Mm-hmm. Not unlike our usual drill weekend. <laughs> But yeah, everybody up top had to figure it out and then lay it down. And by the time they laid it down, new information was coming in. So it was just a lot of jumping, a lot of a lot of learning how to be flexible, how to depend on each other because we're all in the same situation no matter where we came from. If somebody was handling it really cool, go hang out with that person. They're centered somehow that if you gravitate to them, you might kind of end up in that space too versus someone who's over in the corner just angry that, well, Sergeant said this, this, and this, and then that didn't happen. Okay, so you want to sit there and be mad about it or not. Let's go do something different. Or you know what? Now that I'm older and can understand this, take the time, sit in your space, be mad. You need to feel mad right now, but understand that that has to pass. And then you come join us when you're ready. Like those kind of things. That's just the stuff that you learn from that experience. Mm-hmm. There's a I mean, it's a famous quote, but my mom first introduced it to me, but this too shall pass. And you almost Mm -hmm. have to like sit in the thing to have it pass, which it sounds like what you're talking about. And even like, it's almost a funny dichotomy of like the most stressful time potentially of an entire life. And then you're forced to sit potentially the most relaxing thing you could ever do. So when, you know, actually in it, navigating those kind of times, besides just like associating with the people that are also centered with 20 years experience on your side, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about like how you really navigate tangibly the, this too shall pass kind of thing. Is it like, you know, focusing on your breath? Is it, are you trying to just like talk to people and let the time pass or even tangible strategies of like when things get really anxious or when you get really excited, like, what are some ways that you deal with that? Is it just a mindset shift? Or are you like thinking about things? I know affirmations are really big right now, or even like focusing on your breath. Just walk us through how you stay calm under intense situations. A lot of it is innate. Like it's innate in the per- in personality type. Mm-hmm. But like back in the moment, back in, you know, my 20s, it wasn't necessarily a conscientious decision. You just did. But looking back and understanding more about mental health and psychology and how your brain does what it has to do to keep you going. Yeah, it was a lot of compartmentalizing. It was a lot of kind of, not intentional, but like just forgetting what was happening. So I remember we were on our way up to Fort Drum because that was our mob site. And we had to stay overnight in, I think, Binghamton, New York. They found a reserve center for us to stay in. It wasn't our center. We're sleeping in sleeping bags on the floor. We were only gone maybe... We had left Pennsylvania maybe like a day prior. So we were only on orders for about a month. Once we got there, we kind of just forgot that we were on our way to a Moog site. And it just felt like any other annual training. 
we're just all hanging out together. We're training together. Nothing feels different or off. So we just kind of went with it. Actual things were not, because I, I got a couple battle buddies who got really down about things and, and stuff. And being that young, no, I had no idea how to even help them get out of it. If I had fallen in that pit myself, I probably wouldn't. I had, had no clue how to deal. You just kind of, you just kind of sit and be pissy for a while. And like I said, it's, it's not really a conscientious decision. It's just your brain kind of snaps or <laughs> to make a little light of it, um, see something shiny and get your attention somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And you just try and stay in that somewhere else, stay distracted, stay entertained. Like we watched a lot of movies um, until you can't do that anymore. And then you kind of fall back, sit and watch it and then come back, find another shiny object and find a bunch of shiny objects. That's really mm-hmm. what we could do to get through it. Mm-hmm. I hear you. And something that comes to mind, like you mentioned entertained and the shiny objects, but it also is presence just being present in whatever activity it is, whether it's, you know, BSing with your teammates or watching a movie, those activities force you to be present. Some of the stuff that I've done is I've realized that anxiety is only in the future, like just my personal psychology kind of analysis and whatnot. Like the only time I'm having anxious tendencies is when you're thinking about something in the future. So it sounds like you guys are just trying to be as present as possible in whatever container that might take place. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being present with a movie. Like there's great, great ass (laughs) movies out there. You know what I mean? But I think that's a really awesome reframe that I think is really valuable. Just kind of not necessarily compartmentalizing, but it's really just staying in the focus of whatever that specific thing you're doing is. So I would kind of like to know, like we touched on the mental side, but are there any like other big lessons that come to mind around your military experience? It doesn't necessarily need to be the deployment itself, but I'm sure there was loads of military experience on the back side of that. But any like big lessons that come to mind of like the way it shifted, the way you live your everyday life? Honestly, the biggest one is by all means make your life plans and make them goals and strive for them. But understand that at any point along the way, there's going to be something that gets in the way of that. And to be agile with that goal, with that focus, with that life plan, something can come in and derail you, but it doesn't mean that that plan can't still be a thing. You just have to readjust how you are going to face it now. Or just understand that that just might be a life nudge that your goal needs to shift its focus. You know, there's some people that are on, let me backtrack a little bit. There was, I remember when I worked for Geisinger, I was covering a a big bike race. I was working with one of the physician assistants. She had plans to join the military as a PA and, you know, go through the ranks and all this stuff. But she wasn't sure because she was also offered like three other internships that could lead her in any other direction in life. But her goal to that point was to be in the military. I said, listen, if you have a plan and you really want to hit that plan, the military should not be a part of your life. But if you are okay with being diverted a few times and readjusting your view, it's a very rewarding experience to have. And it gives you so many more coping skills. Well, not everybody, but it gives you chances to learn coping skills. It gives you chances to learn how to adjust, how to grow in general, be someone who can sit back and see, see what's important, see what you really need to hold on to versus being that, no, I said I would do this in five years. I can't let go of that. Let go of that. I'm a failure. You know, it just teaches you that you can, 
let go, regroup, and retry without it being disastrous. That's what the military does. We refocus, regroup, retry, and repeat. That's, that's military life. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, thanks for sharing. That's a really good advice um, for myself and I'm sure for everyone that's listening. Yeah, a couple of things that comes to my mind uh, from what you just talked about where the only times when a plan fails is if you don't adjust the plan, right? Because you can't change life. Like life is life. You know, no one has any ownership or control or influence over life. Life just is. So when you're facing such a monstrosity and the totality of life, the only thing that we can do as these insignificant and tiny human beings is we have to adjust ourselves because we'll never adjust life. So that's something that I'd really try to take to heart and try to enact for the next couple of months to come in my own life. Also, what you talked about reminding me about, so I'm reading this book called Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey. It's a little twist to a memoir that he just published recently. Super enjoy the book. I finished the whole book in like two days during my spare time. He, in the book, he includes 30 years of diaries and journaling he written for the past. I think he's 52 now, 50 something. And yeah, he took like a 45 days to desert, literally unplugged from everything, just trying to reconsult and, and write his journals. The, the green lights, when the things went well in his life and the red lights, when things didn't go well. However, he argues that all the red lights and yellow lights in his life attribute his eventual green lights in life. So they're very, very connected. And one of the excerpts he included in the book, he says that every time you fall, make sure you fall forward. Because with the inevitability of life, you will fall many, many times. But if you fall backwards, that's not conducive or productive. So if you're going to fall, which you will, make sure you fall forward and look back. Because by looking back, you're affirming and you're acknowledging all the steps you've come along the way. And although you will be falling, by falling forward, you're at least making that inch or that feet or a mile progress towards your future. So I think that's exactly in sync with what you shared. And I think that's really important and necessary advice that many people, especially in their 20s. I mean, we're late 20s now. And so obviously we've seen more ever since 2017. The mindset has shifted. We, have, we were able to accumulate a life. But for the people who are especially in their early 20s or even late teens, young adults, uh, it's very important that you can't have that almost arrogant mindset that, no, my way is my way. He's like, no, your way isn't your way. Life is. So you always have to adapt, adjust, readjust, re accumulate so that you can venture forward. So, yeah, I just wanted to yeah. echo that. Yeah, and it was the thing of, um, okay, so you're making these adjustments in your life and you can't hit pause to do that. You know, you have to make these adjustments while other things are happening either to you or around you. And that has to be a part of what you're doing. Your life could be falling apart, but the basics still have to be met. You still have to work. You still have to pay bills. You still have to take care of family and kids if you have those. You still have to go to school. You still have to function while all these things are messing with your plan. And now you got to readjust your plan or hit pause on the plan while you handle those things. Like, Handling things live on the fly while things are still happening to you and around you is, it's, it's huge. And that's probably just been the biggest thing that the military has done for me is created the skills and the ability to do that. Not always successfully, but understand that that's how it has to go down or else it all falls. 
I think this is a really relevant topic of conversation because 2020 feels like a masterclass in doing this, right? Like any plan <laughs> that we could have had, any plan that anyone had in any industry, any line of work, place of living, like things were put on hold. People had to adapt, continue finding maybe new ways of income, maybe new ways of supporting their family. So I think it's really timely because this year itself has necessitated adaptation and really like thinking on your feet, figuring out how to still be able to do things, even though having the same goal in mind, but just finding a different way about those things, like the how or what's. So in your experience, does this come down to just priorities, determining what's important, what's not important? I know it's probably difficult to articulate like a framework around it because it's probably just like a knowing of how to adapt like at the time, but are there any you know, advice or insights into how you do this. Maybe it's what things are most important. What are absolute Um, necessities? Maybe if it's a military perspective of it, or even just in your everyday life, how you figure out how to adapt. Yeah. It's kind of being willing to adjust your priorities Mm. and shifting them as life in the situation dictates. So, I mean, obviously before my deployment, my priorities were school, graduate, get a job and do well in all of those things deployment comes in, well, that's suddenly the priority. Like my schooling that was up up here for so long and things I had to do just to get back into school, just to be on my own, to get the finances, to stand on my feet for this, just now got like, it's gone. (laughs) Until I come back. But yeah, but at the time it's gone. Mm -hmm. So now the priority is, okay, how am I going to communicate with my family? How am I going to how am I just going to stay focused and get through all that? So it's just a willingness to fluid priorities, I guess, is a, a good way to put that. Yeah, I like that. I so, like um, yeah, just being able to adjust like that. And that has been huge in, you know, not just the military, military side, but my civilian side. My job is very much based on other people's schedules and their priorities. I know it's high school athletics, but for some people it's their only way forward out of their town or out of you know, any way to move on with their life. Athletics is their ticket to do that. You get someone who gets a significant injury that happens. Well, now your priority has to shift. All that was still important, but now you have to focus on that injury and coming back from that. And when you got parents, the community, if they're like fans of this athlete, that's, it's a lot of pressure to just get back on the field, just get back on the field. Well, us as the athletic trainers, we have to be like, hold on, hold on, good priorities, but now we have to shift that. Your priority right now is you, whatever body part that just got injured, and making sure that you don't get stuck where you are mentally, physically, emotionally to get back where you want to be, to be able to rein in an adolescent in that mindset. And a lot of times they're parents too. The parents are just as worked up. And you still have to pull in and be like, let's everybody take a breath. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's just see what happens. Let's wait till we hear from the doc. Okay, we heard from the doc. Okay, here's your next step. No, don't ask me about the next three steps. Let's let's do this step. Then I can tell you the next three steps, but we're not we're not gonna talk about them. We're gonna worry about this one and, and take it through that way. It's a cool blend of the two sides of, of my life, the military and the civilian, and how they kind of helped each other. Yeah, I love that because it allows if you tell them the three steps ahead, then there's inherently less intention towards the step that they're handling. You know, if they know where they're going to have to go after this step, they're not going to work as hard to get through that step, which is then going to impact the rest of 
how that process goes. So I think that's a really interesting reframe that kind of blends the two together in a way that I'd never thought of. So I appreciate you sharing that. How has the like athletic training career, a little curious on how you got into working at, you mentioned a specific high school. Has that been what you've done as an athletic trainer a little bit? Just the physical well-being nerd in me wants to hear about your journey into that specific career and job. Where did you practice before? Like what did the journey in your civilian life kind of look like? Well, actually back when I was in high school, I actually wanted to do, I wanted to get into computers, programming or something, because it's what my dad did. I thought it was really cool. So that was my focus. I took all the classes in high school for that. Until well, my freshman year is when I tore my ACL for the first time. Went through physical therapy, had surgery, all that. And what's funny is my high school had an athletic trainer. I never saw him. I never thought to go see him. I never knew his name. I didn't know anything about him. So first ACL, I didn't even use my athletic trainer. But I was still knew the computer thing. Two years later, I tore the ACL on the other side. And that's when I started to um, learn that we had an athletic trainer, what his job was. I still saw physical therapy instead, but I started watching him a little more and being like, that's kind of cool. Okay. And I remember I was talking to one of my friends. She had been a student trainer for him. And she's like, oh, you should check this out with me. Like, I've been doing it for a year, but you really like it, you should come, you should come down someday after school. And so I did and watched it all and gave it a shot for a year. And I'm like, okay, student training's kind of cool. Stuck with it for my last two years of high school. And that's basically when I decided that's what I want to do as a profession. You know, in talking to my athletic trainer, he was, you know, Lockhaven University grad, learned all about the school and everything. Like, all right, that's really the only school I even seriously applied to. I had other schools that I put applications into and interviewed and, you know, got the acceptance letters and stuff. I was like, no, that's where I want to go. Here we are. I think I've been doing this job for 15 years now. And it's, other than the schedule, the schedule can be really terrible. But it's it's a very rewarding profession. And it's, there's definitely worse things you can do for your money. And it's a unique job. It's very, I don't know, it's a lot of autonomy. You have a boss, you have an employer, but you kind of get left to just do your job. And that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I think um, your story talks about two things. One's the power of like job shadowing, right? Because I think oftentimes, especially people in their 20s, they're told to oh, do your research, do your research, do your research, but less about actually experimenting. Because you can only read up and do so much research on, oh, what's sports medicine about? What's athletic training about? What do they do? How much money they make? But to actually get into the micro nitty gritty, the reality of it, you almost have to be there. And it sounds like you had that opportunity of the power to execute experimentation with your friends being a student trainer. And I think it's when I look at sports medicine and athletic training, I see a lot of resemblances and similarities between that and the military. And what I mean by that is the U.S., the entire system is very reactive, right? There is no proactivity. There is no preventiveness. It's all reactive. You fix the police. Like right now, the, all this political unrest and all this shit show that's going on, aside from the racism and all that, is precisely because the criminal justice system was built on the basis of being reactive to the crime, right? If you look at the healthcare system, it's entirely reactive, especially the Western medicine is the best at emergency medicine and emergency literally means after the fact it's to be after the emergency happens 
And, you know, I feel like so many things about it, like the, if you look at mental health, therapy, reactive, right? That's why it's important to do therapy, to meditate, to read, to self-care, so that when shit goes down, you have a better grip on your reality. And so in that sense, military is very preventive because all these trainings, all these drills, they are to be proactive so that when shit goes down, you're most prepared. And if you look at your sports medicine and your career as athletic trainer through UPMC, it is also preventive. Obviously, you can help treat the injuries. You can work with the athletes afterwards if they were injured. But parts of your job, I assume, is correct me if I'm wrong, is I'm assuming that you also work on their mobilities, their flexibilities, their their stretches, everything in between all these movements so that um, they're best prevent from it, yeah, possible that's injuries. Actually a, uh, it's actually a domain of the athletic training profession. We have a you know, code of professional ethics and everything like that, and each of these domains is lined out in that ethical code. And one of the domains is injury prevention and maintenance. And so you, know, you do the best you can to, like uh, concussions, for example, there's required education for coaches, all coaches, from head coach to volunteer parent coaches, taught on the signs, symptoms, recognition, things like that. Anything to even try and prevent that injury, that's a sketchy example, actually, because it's you can't really prevent them. But you can be made aware of the things that can lead to them. And so uh, you just start trying to gear athletes toward that mindset to be aware that these things can happen, and here's how we stop that. Like every year our track teams and stuff, they, we wound up seeing 30, 40 kids with chin splints. By the time you have them, obviously it's a little, it's reactive, it's a little too late. But we try when we see these kids throughout the winter to be like, listen, if you don't want this to happen again, like last year, we gotta work on your flexibility, we gotta work on this type of weight training, we have to work on this type of, basically your foot mechanics, we have to work on all this stuff to try and prevent this from happening. And that's where the, an education, preventative education component comes in. And it's huge to do all that. And it's, you know, military is kind of the same way. We have the sharps classes. We have the resiliency classes, things like that. But like anything else, you can educate and you can put it out there all you want, all these prevention measures. But they have to take it or not. Parents, at the high school level, parents have to buy into it too. Or the athletes are going to laugh it off and be like... Okay, whatever. It's going to oversimplify it, but nobody seems to care until it happens. So we got to we got to get the care. We got to get people to care about the prevention part. And on the mental health side of things, we're trained to recognize that too. We're kind of this jack of all trades, master of none kind of thing. We're trained to watch for and identify mental health, eating disorders, stressors, just athletes that might be in some sort of distress. We're not trained to treat it but we're trying to recognize it. Like, hey, how's it going? Do you think maybe we could, you know, have a chat, find out what's happening with that athlete or that patient or that soldier and see if we can steer them in the right direction before it becomes something that isn't so calm. How do you find that you're able to get people to create that? Or how are you able to create that buy-in to be able to allow people to recognize the significance of it because i think you nailed the nailed the nail on the head with the phrase like they're not going to care until they're like living that experience i know and especially i can imagine with high school students like they're feeling invincible of like youthful (laughs) bodies tons of energy just like run it into the ground and stuff right so how do you create that buy-in 
to allow them to recognize the importance of mobility, the importance of caring and recovering for their body. Sadly, it's just this weird cycle of they have to get to know you as their provider. They have to know what you're there for and that you know what you're talking about. So unfortunately, to even plant that thought in their head, they have to have already seen you for something, um, something that wasn't prevented. Mm-hmm. And so they have to learn that you're someone that knows what they're talking about, that you are watching out for them, that you're noticing things, and that you know the steps to get somebody back in the right direction. Because there's some, I mean, like any other profession or uh, setting in your life, there's some people that are really into their job, and you can tell that it's a part of them, and they care, and they're genuine and authentic. And then you got others that you can clearly look and tell they're there for a paycheck. Punch the clock, go home. I covered my sports, nobody got hurt, great, see you later. But then there's always that one kid that just comes in and just hangs out in your room for no reason, has repeat, nothing terrible, just repeat like, oh, well, my knee hurts today, oh, my shoulder hurts today, and all this is sore and that's sore. What are you trying to get away from? Why are you in this room? You may you may seriously just be hurt and have a low pain tolerance, I don't know. But mm-hmm. um, you gotta figure out like, are you tired? Are you stressed? Are you, are you having problems with somebody on the team that you don't wanna face? Why are you in here all the time when you don't need to be? that kind of environment too. If you, It's easy in our profession, especially when we're seeing 50, 60 kids in a matter of you know, two hours, it's too easy to be like, you're fine, go to practice. You're wasting my time, go. And then realizing maybe after the fact that I should talk to them instead of dismissing them, be like, hey, tell you what, we're super busy right now, come on back and we'll talk about it and hope that they actually do. Mm-hmm. So just being able to let them know that that's that's your role. That's your job. That's that you care. Even if even if you have to fake the caring sometimes, that that's that is ultimately what you're there for. We're not just there for the ACL tears, the bumps and bruises and bleeding. We gotta watch all of it. Like I keep thinking of just like investigating in a lot of ways. Like it's not just putting a bandaid on. I mean, I'm sure you've put a lot of band-aids on in your time, <laughs> but really like investigating whether it's like the underlying cause or the underlying reason of you know, what's driving that effect and even why does this keep happening? I mean, I can think of three or four athletes that I played with in high school that were just perpetually injured. And that was just like a inability to like take it easy or like always pedal to the metal kind of thing, you know? And I think it speaks to kind of like the holistic element of athletic training, which I wasn't as familiar with. So I was wondering if you could unpack that a little more just I guess, athletic training versus physical therapists, are you typically acknowledging the problem and then referring them to physical therapists who then solve them? Like, is it more preventative Um, and holistic or more investigative? I'm just trying to sort apples to oranges a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's really multifaceted. It's kind of an all the above kind of thing. So typically our athletes, they're encouraged to go through us for everything. Now, some choose to, they don't have to come to us. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll just choose to use family docs, physical therapists, and come back with a note that says, I'm cleared, thanks, have a nice day. Okay, see you later. But typically an athlete will come in, we'll do our evaluation, we'll come up with our own assessment of what we think is happening, and determine, you know, okay, do you need a referral to see a, one of, you know, a sports med doc, or can we just handle this here in-house? And in which case, that's where the line gets blurred between us and, say, a physical therapist, because we are trained in injury rehabilitation, we can and have gotten scripts from physicians instead of physical therapy for them to come work exclusively with us to work their way back after an ACL surgery, which is typically something that you would 
strictly see a physical therapist for. Uh, so that kind of gets a little gray area. Where we start figuring out where to bring in other members of a sports medicine team is, do we have the resources, the time, the equipment, everything else to give this athlete what they need completely? Something like an ACL, it's pretty standard protocol. We've seen a lot of them. We can manage that. It also depends on what season we're in. In the fall, when everybody's out on all the points of the campuses, or some schools, like we're lucky enough to have three of us at our high school because we're big enough. Most of the schools around, it's one athletic trainer for anywhere from three to 600 athletes. So that it's a staggering ratio. So no, you're not gonna have time to rehab everybody that needs everything. And that's when we start being like, you need to see a physical therapist or mm -hmm. a kid with the low back injury that we just don't see a lot of them. And so we'd kind of be guessing at how to rehab this. Yes, you should go see someone who knows what they're doing more than I do. And that's just knowing your limits. Like my background and graduate work was in corrective exercise. So that kid with the shin splints, I could figure out what the root cause of those shin splints are and treat it. Someone else that's not their background, that's not what they went to grad school for, may or may not know how to do that. And that would be a referral for them. So it's very individualized in that respect, but it's, it's mostly just knowing, staying in your lane, knowing your limits and where you need to stop and when to pull someone else in. Yeah, it's like being flexible. And I know you talked about, it's about learning to stay in your own lane, but not just to stay in your own lane, but also be cognizant about other lanes. So it's a very collaborative effort because it's a team effort, right? And it's weird, but I think it's very relevant that the common theme that I see among your three identities, because I'm very big on the multi-identity analogy that everyone's a piece of pie. But a lot of times we get caught up in a single slice of pie versus the whole pie. So when I think about you, I see the identity of a mother, you know, with two kids, uh, the identity of a sergeant first class. Uh, congratulations again. Uh, for you. the uh, non-military people, it's a big thing. And you're, pr you're pretty much the second or third highest enlisted ranking uh, out of the ranks. So it's a big deal. So you're a commanding sergeant who commands the whole you know, unit uh, with your new promotions and your identity as a sports medicine athletic trainer, right? And what I mean by that is in all your three identities, you're a mom, you're a boss, you're a commanding person, but you're also a team player where you have to sort of babysit a lot of these high schoolers because like what Aiden talked about, when you're going through the hormone changes, you think you're gods, you think you're invincible, you think you know it all, you get very arrogant. A lot of the soldiers in the military, they're also like kids, right? I mean, they're, they're grown adults uh, legally, but they're, they're kids. When I look at them, I say, you're, you're kids. The life hasn't hit you yet. You haven't tasted the flavors of life. And, you know, with your own actually being a mom, you're literally a mom taking care of your own two kids. And I think the ability to be flexible, to stay in your own lane, but at the same time be cognizant of other lanes uh, so that you can fulfill and execute all your responsibilities so I do see a lot of commonalities of being a mom in all three. Um, so with that being said, we definitely have pivoted out of the military, but I just want to mention it one last time because I think all your three identities and all your three fulfillments, uh, responsibilities and functionalities that creates who you are as a person, mental health is like a very big underlying theme, right? And of course you can feel free to go as deep or just touch on it uh, based on your own preference. But obviously back in 2000, you chose to enlist in the military because you were 
sort of disowned or ousted by our parents uh, with your you know, lesbian sexuality. And yeah. being in that in the military at the time was don't ask, don't tell, right? Obviously a very problematic policy where it's very problematic, obviously, in every spectrum of the issues. And then now you being the other side and being the leader of the military organization on a micro in our company-wide size and your job as a athletic trainer, you also wear many hats like you did in the military, like you do as a mom um, that tries to be preventive and tries to help with the corrections, with the habilitations of your athletes. So I want to see your, I guess, experience and your overall take on mental health, how important it has been for you and what you did along the way to take care of your mental health uh, because obviously you went through a lot ever since the year 2000. Yeah, not gonna lie. And, and even before then, um, I mean, this was back, I, I graduated high school in 1999. It was small town, Pennsylvania, one traffic light, you know, everybody knew everybody's family, everybody's business. And it was just a very, I don't want to say sheltered because we weren't like backwards or anything, but um, it was, it was closeted. And by every sense of that, I mean that it was a little bit suffocating. I did have this few extremely good friends who I knew were there no matter what, but you still couldn't openly be like, yeah, this is me, take it or leave it. Cause it wasn't just a matter of social rejection back then. In a lot of ways it could be physically dangerous. So you kind of had to, you had to prioritize. You had to decide what was more important for you and how much of something like your sexuality is a part of your identity. While it is a huge part of one's identity, you have to decide, is that really what you're going to use to define you? And for me at the time, no, it wasn't. I was an athlete. I was a musician. I was a sister. I was a daughter. You know, I had all these other things, all these other facets of my life that being any part of the LGBTQ spectrum was only a portion of that. But yet when you're faced with the potential of that being the one thing that basically ruins your life, it overshadows all of it. So you just kind of have to decide how important is it for me to throw this grenade and face the consequences versus live my life and understand that that's just a part of it to myself. And at the time, joining the military and everything with Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and even that was tricky then because Don't Ask, Don't Tell was, depending on who you ask, and this could really like fire up a lot of people and make me like the bad lesbian, I don't know. But um, <laughs> in some ways, the don't ask, don't tell was meant to be a protective measure because yes, you could get kicked out for being outed. And the idea was people were trying to set you up to out you or finding a way to get you kicked out and you get set up a lot. Whereas don't ask, don't tell was put in and it was, if you asked and they told you, you're in just as much trouble as that person. It was protections, which was nice when it, was overturned I think in 2010 that okay cool I can be out and you can't kick me out at the same time I can be out but that's not gonna stop say when I go to use the showers it's not gonna decrease any tensions in that situation you know so that's that's kind of been a lifelong thing of like okay I'm out now everybody knows and now when I go to use the bathroom <laughs> and you know even like the shower and bathroom situation down at Indian Town Gap, it's open bay. Yeah. <laughs> it's not privacy. Like, right. yep. and, and so when you walk in, everyone's looking at you like, you know, don't, <laughs> you're, not, you're not looking at me, are you? And, you know, you got to like, Jesus Christ, no, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. 
don't think so high of yourself, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's just basically that's just been a lifelong thing. And now that I'm here on the other side, I mean, I'll be, I'll be 40 in February, three amazing boys that I'm in charge of. Now that, now that everything's, I've been out, out for so long and I've had amazing people in my life who have not made me feel any bit of different from it. Like even my parents, it took a long time, but even they, they're a constant path of support for me now. Everybody's kind of changed and evolved and just been this, I understand that's not everybody's experience. Some people have absolute horror stories about coming out and their support chains and things like that. But now in my life personally, it's an area that I kind of forget. It's not an issue. It's, an, it's a complete non-issue. My friends, it's not something that even comes up in conversation. You know, when I introduce myself to somebody, I'm not, I'm not like, hi, my name is Monica and I'm a lesbian. How are you? It's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's not a, nobody's in my life. Nobody seems to care, which is awesome. On the other hand, when you get to the, you know, civil rights issues and uh, things like that, I think they also forget. So when I'm sitting there being all angry that like, you know, gay marriage could be overturned, well, they, they forgot that that affects me or they forget that like, it, it's not a part of their life story. So no, I don't expect them to feel that like I do. But when, when I hear about something like that, I go, it takes me back to my high school self where I'm like, God, like, I thought we were further than this. Like, it's just more pushed you down. Now you, how important is this to you? Whereas nobody else has to ask themselves that question. You know, it's quite sobering to think about it from start to finish like that. So, uh, yeah, I kind of got off track for a little bit there on that one. But <laughs> it's uh, it's just been quite the ride, really. But the, the mental health part of it is you need to learn your identity. Really look in and find out if that's an identity that you like. Even if you don't like it, you have to accept it to start and then make changes that you see fit to your life and your values and you have to learn your values. And what I've learned is you don't realize those things until they're tested. So it really is a lot of trial and error. Anyone in in their early, early to late twenties who has that stuff figured out, I don't know what you went through to learn that, but good for you for finding the other side. Cause it took me up until this point to be comfortable in my skin, to understand the things that of value that matter, the things that are worth fighting over and fighting for being able to form a life with, all that uncertainty with those things within yourself. So all those things, that, um, the resiliency classes that we get, understanding that mental health stigma has changed so much that you really can just go see a therapist without a diagnosis. And that that's huge just to understand that, okay, I can't, I'm having a hard time identifying myself and who I am and what I value. You can talk to people for that. And that's huge now. That wasn't something that was available way back. I don't know if that touched on everything you were looking for, but... I love that perspective you gave. I think, for me, two really strong things come to mind. And the first one is the idea of that awareness precedes acceptance. You can't accept yourself if you're not aware of yourself. And that's something that I've, like, worked on very diligently of, like, in order to have that acceptance, you need to, like, peer behind all the curtains. And then I think to what you said of that... Like to fully accept, I feel like it's almost an ongoing process. Maybe it's because I still am only 26, but every time like I feel I've peered behind all my curtains, like 10 new curtains show up. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like that ongoing, hey, what's behind yeah, here? Just like hearing the new things. It really, it, I can't think of a time in my life where that hasn't been something. Not 
everybody has the capability to be introspective. And whether that's just an innate inability or just simply that there's so much going on in their life that they haven't got their feet under them to do it. You know, if you're a, just for example, if you're a young teenage mom, single, whose family's cut them off, no, you don't have time for introspection. You have to take take care of another human now, plus have a job, plus try not to fall apart yourself. and, And then that's just your life and your identity that you don't even see. That's hard. That hasn't been my life experience, but it's hard, you know. Not, not everybody's going to have that same path. So just to sit there and say, yeah, you have to be introspective. You have to learn these things about yourself. You have to accept yourself. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to be in the position to do that. Yeah, I hear you. It's definitely a privilege and a blessing to have time to be able to do that work and do that introspection like you alluded to. Like everyone has different life experiences that we talked a lot about it on one of our political podcasts. Like we don't know anything about nothing we can do will allow us to live that life perspective, but it's our job to at least like acknowledge that it is a thing. You know what I mean? Do our best to, you're never going to be able to know what it is like to walk in those shoes, but at least acknowledge that those shoes are there and like try and peer into them, you know? So that's also kind of a work in progress, always trying to empathize with people that you don't know anything about, which is Honestly, a big reason why we founded this podcast is like to have conversations like that to peer into people's lives that we know nothing about or haven't lived those experiences. Yeah, and now, and like my experience, I've never been diagnosed or treated for a mental health disorder. Those who are, that's a whole different ballgame. I mean, that's, that's a physical brain chemistry imbalance. It'd be like any other any other injury, so to speak. Let's say you do tear that ACL. Everyone can see that ACL is torn and you go in, you have it fixed and you move on with life. That's not how mental health works. So you can have someone who is aware, who understands, understands their depression, understands their anxiety, understands what's happening to them. There's not a whole lot that they can do about it. We all have, we all can kind of understand what depression feels like, anxiety feels like, Probably on some level, we've all felt those things. But someone with that diagnosed uh, disorder, they can know that anxiety and that depression, they can know that it's not really coming from anywhere, but they can't shut it off. Those of us who aren't in that position know like, yeah, man, I'm depressed today and it sucks. Oh, well, I'll be better tomorrow. That's not the case for that person with that diagnosed disorder. They, They have to stay in it. There's no out. There's no trick other than the distraction medications, coping mechanisms, but they still have to sit in it. And to know that if they're cognizant enough to be aware that that's what's happening to them and still have to sit there and be like, this is my life. This is what it's going to be all day, every day, all the time. And it's, that's just their existence. There's, there's an other side, a temporary other side, but that's where they have to stay. So someone who can do all that, work on the introspective pieces, still manage life, still move on, like that's, that's a huge challenge. Um, I mean, look at these soldiers with PTSD, those, those symptoms aren't going away. They have to learn how to manage them when they come up. You know, and that's why we need people around promoting the 22 a day and, you know, check on your battle buddies and don't come at it with a, well, snap out of it. They can't. It's not something that can just be 
flip a switch or there's no amount of shiny object that's going to take care of that one. And so when you have those people in your life, you have to understand that part of them too. That's a really powerful story, Monica. I really appreciate you kind of opening up about mental health. I think it's a really important conversation to be having right now, uh, 2020 especially. I know numerous people, myself included, been struggling with mental health. So it's really important to be bringing ideas like that to light. So we do deeply appreciate it. And as we're coming up towards our close, we'd like to ask you a question that we ask all of our guests at the end. And it's, if you have a mentorship program, you can have, whether it's high school students, college students, just the next generation coming up in your mentorship program, what's some advice or insights that you'd like to share with them? Two big things come to mind. One, understand the difference between your book knowledge and the real knowledge, real knowledge that you would be there to learn, like say at an internship program or anything that has on the job training. You can have your 4.0 GPA, but that means absolutely nothing to me if you can't do your job and not just do it, but do it in a way that relates to the people that you're going to be working with, you know, especially in, in the avenues of my life with athletic training and military. If you can't convey what you're trying to do to the people around you, it, it really is kind of useless knowledge. So that's the, that's the big one. Piggyback on that, be humble. You have, you have to have some humility or if, if you're gonna, if you have a mentor and you're, you know, all about being a great mentee, you can't walk into a situation and be like, oh, I learned about this already, I got this. You don't, <laughs> I, I can promise you, you don't. Um, I've had, we've had a few rare students, uh, we, we get college students that come into our training room all the time for their clinical experience. And some of them are really on top of it and they know what they're doing, but those, they are few and far between that they have that perfect knowledge, that perfect balance of their classroom and book knowledge and being able to run an athletic training room. Most of the time, if, if they came in that first day and we were like, okay, you're smart, go work. They kind of don't know what to do. And even before they get to us, they've already done some type of field experience on their own at their college or university. They've, they've ran a training room before, but because they're in a different one, they don't know what to do. So yeah, be humble and understand the difference between what you know and what you can do. They are not always the same. Yeah. That's uh, I think that's, those are the lifelong lessons and devices that are applicable to not just high school and college, but even further in the late twenties, thirties, forties, and I think that's when the advice is truly shine and when it's there timeless, right? They're ubiquitously applicable and they're universal to everyone. So appreciate that. And yeah, so to wrap up this episode, um, obviously we really appreciate and are grateful for your time on this Saturday to spend with us, especially with your multiple identities and your, your life um, <laughs> happening on its own. So with the ethos of our platform of Discover More, we would like to challenge you to seek one area in your life that you can discover more about because with that humility with that humble mindset it's important for all of us to acknowledge despite of our ages and experiences that there's always something more to be discovered uh, and so we would like to ask you as the host of this show to discover something more in your life about and with that being said what's one area that you would like to encourage the listeners to discover more about in their respective lives after listening to this episode Take the time to be introspective on yourself whenever you can. 
especially in the areas that you don't always want to face. So if there's something that you don't like about you, and I don't say that to drag, to intentionally have people drag themselves into a bad headspace, but you're not going to be able to f- deal with and fix the issue unless you face it head on and understand why that's a part of you and why it would need to change or not. You might like that part of yourself. But yeah, don't be afraid to face any parts of you because they are a part of you and you have to you have to embrace, accept, and love yourself as you are before you can make it anything else that you would want it to be. Yeah, when people say, and in the AA meetings, when they say acceptance is the first step, I think the first step is to acknowledge because only through acknowledgement, then you can accept. Uh, because if you look at a lot of PTSD, as a lot of traumas, they tend to re-submerge and reoccur in your headspace, subconscious mind, because many people in their in those experiences, in those headspace, have the tendency to grab onto the shiny things and to either dismiss, compartmentalize, internalize, or to insert up denial. And when you are in denial, perpetually so, your mind finds ways to tell you. And that's when a lot of PTSD resurfaces and that's like a lot of the root causes of traumas. So yeah, it's a great advice. I think you have to first acknowledge, then accept who you are because that is part of you. And um, since we talked about a lot about mental health and military, I do want to share a fact with everyone that the number one preventive measure that one could do for someone who's on the spectrum of who's on the headspace of potentially committing suicide is check in. So there's numerous um, indicators of how you okay, suspect someone may commit suicide. And there's a lot of trainings on that online and we'll link the information below. When you speak to suicide attempts and people who have committed suicide and survived, uh, fortunately so, when you ask them, what's one thing that someone could have done for you to help you steer away from that headspace or that uh, prevented your suicide attempt? And 85% of them, or 86, a very staggeringly high number, they share that if someone just asked me straight up on the day that they were going to commit suicide or that the day they committed suicide, are you thinking about suicide? Or even just straight up ask them, are you okay? Right? And for them, they may not always answer truthfully because of their headspace and because of the darkness they're experiencing. But by asking explicitly, are you thinking about suicide or are you okay? As simple as that sounds to them, they're hearing and they're feeling the warmth of humanity and of caring that, oh shit, I thought I was isolated. I thought nobody else in this world cared about me. I thought I had to face the burden of the world by ourselves. But now by someone just seemingly insignificant and small action of just checking in and asking me how I feel, now I know there's a light. I know that I am no longer alone and I don't have to face and tackle the world by myself. So that's something that I wanna share and encourage everyone to do um, so. I say, but I- I have a few few minutes yet to piggyback on that because this has been a huge something that I've learned in dealing with the people in my life who do have mental health struggles and, you know, who do have suicidal tendencies. Nobody likes to talk about suicide. Nobody likes the idea of suicide. Even the people who have suicidal tendencies, they don't like the idea of it. They like the idea of the release that would come from it, but they don't like the idea of it. That's why it's so painful um, to be in that mindset in those moments. 
So that being said, the thing is, anybody who has that, that ideation or anybody who has that inclination needs to know that whoever's talking to them has a mindset about it that isn't judgmental, that it isn't, don't get me wrong, there's, there's people that do use it in the wrong ways, but it's not about attention seeking. It's not about just having a hard time in your life. It's not about um, whatever your diagnosis might be. It's a matter of whoever's talking to you isn't judging you for having those tendencies or thoughts and isn't, isn't contacting you just to stop you. They're contacting you because they understand what that would feel like to be on the cusp of making that decision for yourself and that it's not about, it's just a hard time. No, it's not just a hard time because there's going to be other hard times. It's about the idea of release. Some people want to wake up on a beach because that's relaxing to them. Other people just don't want to wake up. So it's not always cut and dry of you have so much to live for. You have this, you have that. No, it's just, I I just don't want to be in it anymore. And so to sit there and be like, I'd be so angry. Everyone would be so angry if, if you committed suicide. That's not helpful. It's more just like, you know what? Why don't you tell me about it? I get it. Tell me, tell me, where's your headspace? What's going on there now? There's no, no judgment. No, I'm not going to be appalled by anything that you tell me. I'm not going to be, I'm not even going to sit here and try and convince you one way or the other. I'm just here to let you know that I can feel that. I understand what's, what's happening to you right now. And that's, that's huge. That's kind of the, the shift. I'm not a professional, <laughs> but in, the, in my conversations and dealings with people that have that as a part of their life, that's been my takeaway of that experience. So. Yeah. Uh, wow. It's a mic drop moment. <laughs> um, yeah. Just to, yeah. For many of us um, who will simply never get to understand because of the lack of relevant experience, uh, it's important for them to show them that we, we may not ever understand, but at least we're going to try. It's attention. It's the attempt in understanding. And I think, the two words that will summarize this episode beautifully is a radical acceptance. Be radical accepting of your own identity, self-love. That's what that happens. That's what that means. And be a radical acceptance of other people and their circumstances. Because as we talk about in the show many times before, at the end of the day, despite your gender, your sexuality, your race, your biology, what you look like, we are team humans, period. So um, yeah, that's a beautiful message. I... This definitely felt like a therapy session for me. So I would definitely love to uh, integrate and implement many of the things I learned from today's episode into my own life for the next couple of months. Um, really thank you for being here, uh, Sergeant Anderson, or I guess Monica, since we're not on military <laughs> times. Um, yeah, thank you for your host of and collective wisdom that you share with us through your 40 years of life. Uh, congratulations on your promotion to Sergeant First Class. And just to wrap this episode up, uh, our fellow soldier, Garrett Nork, Specialist Nork, he knew that you will be on the show today. And he specifically requested to give you a shout out. And he says hi. Um, Yeah, he's a soldier who just departed the Army and he's in the transition to the Navy SEAL through the uh, uh, Navy Department. So, yeah, he says hi. He was one of my former athletes as well. He's uh, his athletic trainer. Yeah, Lock Haven (laughs) University. Uh, but yeah, with that being said, to all the listeners, if you have made it so this far, we really appreciate you and thanks for listening. And hopefully you 
took away something from this episode as always. And until next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.